The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note this call may be recorded. I'll be standing by if you need any assistance. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer, Executive Editor for Energy Intelligence. Please go ahead. To add to the myriad challenges it is already facing, the Middle East is now dealing with a new conflict, one which pits the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas, Qatar, against the world's biggest oil exporter, Saudi Arabia, along with the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain. The Saudis and their allies accuse the Qataris of supporting and funding Islamist political groups and getting too close to Riyadh's big regional rival, Iran, and have imposed a land, sea and air blockade. The condition for lifting that blockade had been that Qatar complies with a list of 13 demands laid out by the Saudis and their allies, but Doha has stood firm. And the Saudi group has now changed tack somewhat, instead asking Qatar to agree to six broad principles, including a commitment to combat terrorism and extremism. There's been no Qatari response as yet, but this does, and let's be cautious here, seem to improve the prospects for a diplomatic solution. For the moment, however, the blockade remains in place, adding to the general sense of unease and uncertainty around oil and gas supplies from the Middle East. But what does it actually mean in real terms for oil and gas markets? To discuss this question, I'm joined today by three of my colleagues. In Dubai, our Bureau Chief Oliver Klaus and our senior Middle East reporter Amina Baka, and here in London, our Bureau Chief and editor of World Gas Intelligence, Jane Cullen. Jane, Amina, and Oliver, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks. So, Oliver, let's thank start you. with you. We're more than six weeks into this crisis. What's your assessment of where things stand now, particularly in light of the news we've had over the past 24 hours? Uh, thank you, Jim, and um, hello, everybody, on the call. Uh, in terms of your question, yesterday I would have said the short answer is no, we're not really closer to a solution. Uh, I guess in light of some of the news we've seen come out over the past 24 hours, I'd say maybe um, there's a slight change in positions or at least an indication that there's a little bit of flexibility on some of these demands that the coalition countries uh, originally made uh, uh, towards Qatar. Um, so basically what the coalition is now asking from Qatar is to comply to six broader principles rather than 13 specific demands. Now, I guess this could pretty much amount to the same thing. Uh, it may just be a repackaging. We haven't seen the exact details. Um, at the same time, I'd say that definitely does appear to be at least a slight change in tone. So, for example, we, you know, we had initially the coalition saying Al Jazeera must shut down. Um, now they're si saying it may not be necessary to shut it down but it has to stop incitement to violence and hate speech. So I guess 
you know, it does represent a bit of a softening uh, of position on that particular issue, at least. Uh, I still think that because it is such a complex issue and it's so multi-layered and has deeper roots, um, uh, I would say a quick resolution is still probably unlikely. Um, no one wants to come out of this being seen as having given in, um, especially because this has become such a public battle now. So, um, you know, where each side has been trying to convince the world basically that they are right. So I think, you know, we really have to see how Qatar responds to the latest coalition comments. Like you said earlier, they haven't responded yet. It is a complex situation. It could improve, but, you know, by all means, it, it could escalate further, too. Um, and maybe just as a final point for now, um, you know, the, the problem with this whole crisis is that even if it does get resolved pretty quickly now, things won't just go back to normal uh, overnight, I'd say. Um, you know, people here in the region, they won't just forget. It won't be business as usual. So there's a lot of distrust now. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's it for now in terms of my assessment. Okay, so maybe a little bit of progress here, a chink of light in this, but that we shouldn't get too optimistic about a swift resolution. Let's think about the impact hope. we've seen so on, on the uh, oil and gas business in the region. Uh, on oil trade, maybe Anna, you can address that, and also on LNG shipments out of Qatar, maybe Jane, you can talk mm -hmm. about that. But let's hear about uh, the oil first from Amina. Uh, hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Um, on the oil side, it's mainly um, um, a problem with the trade, really. Uh, when the crisis started, we've seen uh, circu um, circulars from both the UAE and Saudi Arabia banning all ships coming uh, from Qatar, uh, Qatari vessels, Qatari vessels carrying, um, or any vessels carrying Qatari flags, or even third-party vessels from Qatar, um, carrying shipments of all kinds, uh, they were banned from UAE and Saudi ports. So um, in terms of oil trade, oil coming from Qatar to the UAE, that that got affected. Um, but apart uh, apart from that, uh, there's been no impact. The, the only immediate impact is just in those uh, two, uh, two ports, the, any Saudi port or any UAE port. Okay. Oh, okay. I will... Hi everyone. Um, well, as on LNG trade, um, there basically has been no impact uh, that we can see. Um, a colleague of mine earlier this week looked at ship tracking data. The number of LNG, gasoline LNG tankers on the water is the same as it was before the conflict sort of erupted six weeks ago. And you can see spot prices, um, spot LNG prices, which could expect you to have gone up had there been any disruptions, or in fact slightly lower than they were six weeks ago. Um, moreover, concerns that Egypt, which is one of the um, adversaries, uh, gas adversaries, might block shipments through the Suez Canal, uh, you know, not come to pass. I mean, it would in fact have been illegal under international maritime law, but Egypt hasn't done that. And even if Egypt had, Qatar could have sent shipments um, around the Cape of Good Hope, which would take longer but cost roughly the same. Um, oh, well, I could take it more if you want me to. Yeah, I mean, really, I, I don't think anybody ever thought LNG shipments would be effective anyway, despite, you know, some jitters at the start. For one, Qatar wants to maintain its reputation as a reliable supplier, which it's always been. For the other, 
that Egypt, um, which imports a lot of LNG, it would not have been in its interest. It's a summer air conditioning demand has risen, so gas demand um, risen. Had there been any disruptions to gasery exports, um, spot prices would have risen and it would have cost Egypt a lot more. And just to say, in fact, Egypt does get a lot of its gas from Qatar, not directly through intermediaries, but about 60% of its shipments have been coming um, via middlemen to Egypt, so it would have had a bigger impact. Anyway, that's... Okay, thanks, Jane. Thanks, Emma. So relatively little impact so far on, on movements of oil and gas around and out of the, the region. Um, but Oliver, if I can turn back to you, Lots of major international oil companies have investments in Qatar. They also have investments and trade with Saudi Arabia, with UAE, Egypt. So how have these companies responded to the crisis and what risks did it pose for them, do you think? Um, yeah, thanks, Jim. So, yeah, we all know, I mean, the likes of Exxon, Shell, Total, they all have massive investments in Qatar. They are also involved in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, Total also, of course, just signed a big deal in Iran the other week. Uh, what we know is that, um, you know, a lot of these top executives have been in Doha in the past few weeks. And, you know, we have, we have deals, be, uh, we have seen deals being announced. Total officially launched the takeover of the Shaheen field a week ago. So there has been activity. Um, and, uh, apparently there have been a number of meetings behind closed doors, basically some local mudlesses, um, where, you know, the Qataris have pressed some of those top IOC executives um, um, to show support for Qatar publicly. And, you know, apparently, so at least that's, you know, what we've heard, you know, they were discreetly reminded um, of the importance Qatar has for them as a revenue generator. So um, there's definitely been this kind of pressure, um, it seems, uh, you know, from the Qatari side. We've had Total CEO come out really strongly saying that, you know, he doesn't have to take sides, you know, in, in a conflict like this. They do business um, in Saudi, in Iran, in Qatar. But so from my conversations um, uh, with people in the industry, the main question on the minds of a lot of these executives has really been, and that's across the board, you know, including oil services firms that are doing business on uh, both sides of the conf- conflict, they're just worried about what could still come. I mean, no, you know, two months ago, no one would have thought that within a week or so, uh, Qatar would be cut off by Saudi, the UAE, and so on, and you know, won't be able to import anything uh, uh, from its neighbors. Basically, uh, you know, there's there's client, there's companies, uh, service companies fabricating in Jebel Ali uh, for Qatari clients. They you know they can't easily get. Uh, um, um, whatever they're fabricating, you know, it could be rigs. Uh, uh, they, they can't just ship them over to Qatar. You know, they have to find alternative routes. They have to take them to Oman. They have to change the uh, the shipment papers. So it's become a really complex and, and also costly um, issue. I think the, um, I mean, the concern has basically been that there will be this expansion of sanctions that the, the Emiratis have sort of threatened may happen, basically asking trading partners to choose sides, you know, you're with us or you're against us. And this hasn't happened. But, you know, I think given what we've seen, you can't rule it out. So no one thinks, you know, the, the let's say the Saudis would turn around and say, well, you know, you guys, you've got to divest in Qatar if you want to continue making business with us. Um, you know, I don't 
think that's feasible and it would have um, really negative repercussions. But, you know, for new, pro- for new projects, what people, you know, people are sort of saying, well, we are concerned that um, future decision-making may be impacted. So maybe, you know, companies who are committed and have, ex- you know, expressed ongoing support to their business in Qatar could lose out in tenders or nego- negotiations. It's speculation, but, you know, um, I think you cannot rule out anything, really. Uh, so, you know, what will Exxon is looking to uh, or negotiating with Abu Dhabi to see the lower and upper Zakum field integrated um, and is negotiating. So, you know, could that be could could the negotiations be impacted? I don't I, you know, I don't know. I don't think it can be ruled out. So um, but, you know, in many ways right now, it's still a wait and see approach and companies are just dealing with the sort of day to day logistical challenges uh, arising from the embargo, you know, trying to get whatever they need to get to Doha uh, or to Qatar to get there and and then deal with the cost implications. Okay, thanks for all of us. So, um, no massive impacts on trade so far. Prospects, um, like the last 24 hours, for maybe uh, some kind of amicable resolution. But also, as you say, all the investor concerns about possible expansion and sanctions. So let's think about that for a moment. You know, if we do get escalation, how might this affect oil and gas differently from how it's affecting um, oil and gas now? And if, again, if Amina maybe can talk a little bit about the oil side first and then Jane on gas and LNG. Sure. Um, I mean, on the oil side, the the biggest, uh, or it's just in general, any the, the trading route that will affect Qatar the most is the shutdown of the Suez Canal. And that hasn't happened yet. But again, if things escalate, um, that might be a step that uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE might ask Egypt to do. Um, for for the time being, uh, they haven't really. I mean, there hasn't been an escalation of sanctions since Qatar rejected the 13 um, conditions. Uh, they there was talk by the foreign ministers in Cairo that sanctions would be escalated, but we haven't seen any specifics on that. But if they wanted to take a measure that would impact uh, hydrocarbon. Uh, trade in general from Qatar, it would have to be the shutdown of the Suez Canal, which would uh, increase the cost of, of shipping out of Qatar. Already the foreign minister in Qatar had mentioned that um, trade or shipping anything in and out of Qatar is costing them 10 times more. So um, they're, they're feeling some kind of the, the impact already in terms of costs. Uh, but uh, in, in, in terms of escalation, as I mentioned, I, I think the most uh, significant thing would be the, uh, the shutdown of the canal. Okay, thanks. Jane? Well, obviously, if that happens, it would affect um, LNG trade. Um, and well, you can just see how important uh, Gasar would be, any, any disruption, any impact. Um, it accounted for 30% of global LNG trade last year, and you kind of have to regard it as the Saudi Arabia of the gas world. Um, as I said, um, you know, exports haven't been disrupted so far, so there's been no real short-term impact. In addition to what um, Amina said, you know, in the event of the, the, uh, the some shutdown of the Suez Canal, it would have a big impact. As I say, I mean, gasoline vessels could still get to Europe because this is their route to, to Europe. Um, they could still get to Europe via the Cape of Good Hope. It, it would take vessels longer. And I think, and just the shutdown would obviously send pricing shooting up. 
But I, I think um, whatever happens, actually, even if this dispute just fizzles out and it's all resolved, well, not exactly amicably, but there is going to be a longer-term impact on the LNG world. Um, I know that, you know, we all know that Gatow has always been a reliable supplier and obviously wants to maintain this reputation. But I think for buyers, when it comes trying to seek new contracts or renegotiate old ones, the issue of security of supply um, might come to the fore. Um, it would reinforce the need for, for, for buyers to diversify supply. Um, perhaps by turning to new sources, say Mozambique, the US, Papua New Guinea. Um, that's not to say buyers would, you know, junk the Gattery contracts completely. I mean, it's far too important to ignore. But as I say, I think long-term, one big impact is going to be to focus buyers' minds on security and supply. Okay. Um, now, of course, if we think, think long-term here, against this backdrop, just stay with you, Jane, here for, for a moment. Um, Qatar has announced, in the midst of all this, uh, this crisis, a major expansion of LNG capacity. So this raises the question, you know, why has this happened? How should this be viewed in the context of the blockade? Does this have a political dimension? Is this a show of strength or defiance on the part of Qatar? Oh, interesting question. Well, I think you're right, Jim. It does have a political dimension. I think you could see it as a statement to the world that Qatar's not been cowed by this crisis. But I think it's also a signal, a commercial signal, that Qatar intends to maintain its 30% share of the global market in the face of growing competition from Australia and the US. Australia is set to overtake Qatar as the world's biggest um, LNG exporter uh, in the next year or so, while uh, the US is set to be producing about 65 million tonnes a year by the end of this decade versus Qatar's well, 79 million tonnes last year, which it now intends to increase to, to 100 million tonnes um, early next decade. But having said that, you know, details of this expansion are incredibly hazy. Uh, Gatar wants to do bottleneck its existing liquefaction trains or add new ones. Probably it will have to build a couple of new ones. It's also not clear, it's not said, whether it wants to involve its existing international partners, which uh, the main ones are Shell, Exxon and Total. Basically, all it said is new capacity will be online by 2022 to 2024, by when the global LNG glut is expected to have worked itself off. That said, I mean, by the end of next day, well, by 2030, analysts are actually, well, some analysts are suggesting that um, a demand gap of around 150 million tonnes a year could have opened up. So it's clear that the Qatar can't plug this gap on its own. Um, and obviously, schemes elsewhere will go ahead longer term. But in the short term, the announcement, I, I think, has definitely rattled higher cost projects elsewhere at the pre-FID stage. Um, Looking at LNG projects uh, pre-FID, uh, pre it's basically it's buyers who hold the key to whether they go ahead. Large projects cost billions of dollars, and generally FIDs come only once buyers have been secured and financing arranged. So actually, this leaves Gatter on the same position as everybody else. It too will have to line up buyers. It's LNG projects for the lowest cost in the world. So in theory, it should be able to offer buyers the lowest prices and still make a profit. Uh, in fact, it's plays hardball, it's charged premium for, you know, for supply on the ground, so it's a reliable supplier. That works in the seller's market. It's not a seller's market today. It's a buyer's market. Buyers have loads of options. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether Gatar changes its hardball marketing strategy. Um, I'll just 
briefly say that the, the projects I think might, you know, pre-SIT projects elsewhere, I think most at risk of being delayed or killed off short-term uh, greenfield schemes in uh, Western uh, Pacific Canada, which are still all at the starting gate, very high cost, possible brownfield expansions in Australia, possibly some Russian capacity. And what there's been quite a lot of speculation about, or we've been speculating anyway in our publications, is what happens to U.S. projects, not those that are already underway, but those in the so-called second wave of capacity that are supposed to be coming online early next decade. At the moment, actually, suppliers, U.S. suppliers are still trying to win customers with radical new sales strategies, you know, offering volume and destination flexibility, and even fixed pricing in, in some instances. But this contracts with a Gattery um, marketing proposition, which so far has based stick to delivered contracts with a tiny bit of flexibility. But the key difference is, of, is pricing. Most U.S. projects are priced off Henry Hub, gas, uh, get our indexes, it's LNG to oil prices, and at the moment, given the lower for longer oil price scenario, well, the, actually the level of oil prices now, even Gatry LNG is more competitive than US LNG. Uh, Henry Hubbard cargoes will only look uh, more attractive if three things happen, and they have to happen simultaneously. One is Henry Hub prices are low, which they are. The other, there's a tight LNG market, which there won't be for a few years. And the other is high oil prices, and who knows, which will make the LNG, you know, gasoline LNG uncompetitive. Um, anyway, I'll just conclude by saying it's price isn't the only consideration for bias. It is a very big one. Um, but it's the whole contract package they're looking at. It's the flexibility, which Gata has not so far offered. The you know, flexibility on volume, flexibility on destination. So projects you know, that offer this may still be in with a chance, even if the Gata expect to go ahead on time as they Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I think at this point we could break and see if we have got any questions coming in from our audience. And at this time, if you would like to register to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. If you find your question has been answered, you may withdraw your question by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. And we will pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay. Uh, while we're waiting, um, Oliver, another question for you. Uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier on, but this crisis, what does this do for? <coughs> excuse me. What does this do for the Middle East reputation as a destination for investment? And I ask this question because we now have both Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, the UAE planning IPOs for national oil companies. So it really does raise the question, is this dispute going to make investors think twice about parting with their cash? Uh, yeah, um, thanks. It is a good question. Um, it's not just the IPOs. I mean, we have those countries all actively looking to diversify their economies. And um, I guess the IPO you know, is sort of part of this in Saudi Arabia. You know, it's a need for an investment. Um, to really implement these plans. So I think, I mean, I think in terms of the, the, the region's reputation as a, uh, a destination for investment, I think for the GCC specifically, uh, this could have repercussions, you know, one way or another, um, because a lot of the previous assumptions about the region are just being questioned and, you know, possibly no longer valid. The, um, you know, the, the Gulf or the GCC was always seen to be some sort of safe haven in a tumultuous region. 
decision making, especially as far as foreign policy and, you know, in terms of business climate, uh, you know, that was pretty steady, pretty predictable. And, uh, just, you know, this is probably no longer the case. Uh, you know, initially people thought the whole crisis was just a storm in a teacup, essentially. And now they're saying, well, we're really concerned because the crisis broke out overnight, you know, so suddenly and with such intensity. Um, so what does that mean for our future planning? So no one thought, I, I don't think anyone really thought something like this could just happen in the GCC. So I think for investors, um, they, will, they will look at the region differently. Um, and, you know, people I've spoken to, they, you know, they, they do say that, um, uh, uh, at least, you know, while we're in this situation. Um, so I think we could probably see investor confidence, you know, being shaken, uh, possibly really undermined. Uh, it's, I, I do think there's a psychological impact. Um, and so and then, of course, like we said, if the investment climate is really impacted, uh, uh, it's a problem for all countries. You know, it, it's a problem for the Saudis, for the Emirates, for Qatar, because, like I just said, you know, all the economic diversification plans rely on foreign investment. And so that's really what you want to avoid. And, um, and, you know, you, you kind of want to avoid this kind of situation and dragging it out. So uh, with regard to the um, Aramco IPO plans, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Adnok uh, has announced, you know, that it'll look for more foreign participation in its up, mid and downstream. They want to float some business units. So it's early to say. I do think that investors will take notice of some of the, you know, of, of the events and some of the decision making, especially in Riyadh, because after all, you know, Riyadh will continue to own 95% in Aramco if that's listed, if that goes ahead. So, you know, do you trust they'll create value and will have the shareholders' best interests in their minds at all times? You know, not everybody would have thought so anyway, but, uh, you know, I could imagine that some people will be even more worried now. Um, so yeah, that's basically uh, my, my take. Okay, thanks, Oliver. Um, let's just check again whether we have any questions coming in from our audience. And I just wanted to give a reminder to ask a question. Please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. And okay, at this time, it does again. not look like we have any questions. Okay. Well, while we're waiting, uh, Amina, if I can just turn to you again with another angle on this, which is what this crisis means for OPEC. Um, we have a number of OPEC members involved in this, of course, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE. Could this spill over into the group's decision-making with the Saudis in the UAE on one side and Qatar on the other? First of all, Jim's Qatar is a very small oil producer, so um, it has very, very small impact on uh, on OPEC decisions. Qatar's uh, main role, really, or its power came from the GCC block, and the GCC block took, usually had a unified position within OPEC. Even prior to any start of an OPEC meeting, we would have the GCC members uh, meeting, and then the OPEC meeting would start, and they would usually have um, a single position. But if Qatar wanted to have uh, its own uh, voice at OPEC, it, it doesn't carry so much weight because it's such a small oil producer. Um, and it's uh, according to uh, the OPEC uh, data I have here, their, their, um, their quota is at, at around 618,000 barrels a day, which is 
really, really small. Um, so I don't see them really having uh, an impact uh, in the OPEC decision. And uh, But according to sources that I've spoken to at OPEC, Barkindu is in constant contact with uh, the Qatari energy minister, al-Sada, and uh, he has communicated to him that Qatar is still committed to the OPEC deal and will not uh, pull out for any reason. But in the case where it does, um, it, it won't have a severe impact. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, let's just check. We have time, I think, for to squeeze one question if we have anything from our audience. Have we have any questions in yet? Uh, we do not have any questions at this time, sir. Okay. Well, uh, we are, I think, in any case, almost out of time. So I should really just thank uh, everyone who's listened in today, and, of course, Amina, Oliver, and Jay for taking time today to discuss these issues. We're going to be taking a break next month, so our next virtual roundtable will take place in September. Please keep an eye on our website, www.energyintel.com, where details of the topic and participants will be posted in a few weeks' time. So until then, thank you and goodbye.